How thrilling it is this evening that we have each been granted the wonderful opportunity to gather like this with a degree of health and other blessings of the day. What better way could there be that as the shades of evening gather about us to have the opportunity and to have taken advantage of it to gather like this to offer the much deserved worship unto the God of heaven. Tonight as we make consideration of yet another lesson in our Bible and science series, you might take note that this is the tenth installment in that series of lessons this evening. And in fact, as we take a look at the notice of that tenth one, it's the third portion that deals with the human body in its relation to the proclamations of Scripture. As we have involved ourselves in this series of lessons through these ten installments again, might we also appreciate that this will be the closing lesson of this series as well as we have, in fact, come a rather interesting distance looking at how the Bible and science so wonderfully march hand in hand. To review just a few of those ideas, we began the series attempting to comprehend somewhat more thoroughly the place of the Bible, the place of science, the regimes of operation of each, and the importance that's attached to each one of them as well. But from that particular point, we turned our attention to some special considerations, first in astronomy, and from there in biology, and then in geology. And along the line, we also added meteorology, oceanography, chemistry, and physics, all the while noting that there were some things that in fact proclaimed in the Bible that did touch each of those subjects. Furthermore, we noticed a lesson dealing with dinosaurs, inasmuch as that especially is a topic of great interest to many in our world today. Following this discussion of our dinosaurs, we then have discussed the human body now for a couple of weeks. Tonight will be the third, third series involving that especially. We looked at the heart and the brain and the eyes and the ears. Tonight we'll add two more elements to, to the discussion of the human body. As we take a look at each one of them, I hope that we have each been able to stand more in amazement at the intricacy of the human body, the powerful way that even science itself sets high the realization that there is a God who has fashioned this world and all of the scientific principles in which it, in which it operates. And not only are those things the truth, they in fact will lead us into the future realms of truth even in scientific endeavor. Tonight, might I invite your attention then as we look at, first of all, in the lesson this evening, another aspect of the body that is of such great intrigue, and it just like the others have been, is something that we can even look at rather directly. The skin is what we will consider for the first part of our lesson tonight. I think each of us have some appreciation for the wonder that associates to the the operation and the activities that take place in the skin of our body. However, I would hope to share a little bit of some things that perhaps we are not as aware of, also necessary and vital in terms of a healthy, successful person. Perhaps you can already consider the amazement that associates with it. I will praise thee again, the psalmist declared, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. The marvelous wonder of the human body is also seen in, in that skin that covers the muscles, bones, the tendons, the other things of the body. Notice some things scientifically that can be stated about the skin. It would be my suspicion that perhaps we are a little too often to forget about just how vital 
and just how useful the skin really is. I've listed some scientific truths about it just so that we have a better grasp of all that takes place of a necessary variety for our body just by virtue of the skin. The skin is the largest organ in your body and mind. When we often think about the heart or the stomach or other organs, the skin is by far the largest. Notice some other things, though, about the skin that make it so terribly intriguing. It consists of two principal regions. The top region is known as the epidermis, that region that is difficult, unless you're cut very badly, but difficult to see otherwise is the dermis. It sits beneath the epidermis. And one of the very first things that is so terribly intriguing is to notice in what way the outer cells of the epidermis replace themselves. Consider this. Your skin is constantly being replaced. That is to say, every few days there's an entire new outer layer of skin on your body. That's the way God designed it. The outer layers of the epidermis wash away as we bathe and by way of friction with clothing and other things. And the cells from the lower parts of the epidermis move right up and replace them on a constant, regular, recurring basis. Almost an immediate good question would be this. If one were to view the skin as the covering to the house, might I ask us to contemplate how wonderful a design that is. Not a one of us can think of a single house that can replace its own roof, but yet your skin does it all the time. That's by design of God. That's the character he fashioned and made within it. Man, again, has not come close to designing anything that can repair itself the way the skin can, that can, in fact, replace itself on a regular basis, and yet all of that is already a part of the marvelous majesty that associates to the skin itself. But consider this. For the next moment or two, just contemplate a square inch of your skin. Just imagine a square inch on the back side of your hand and think about the next few things that we're about to consider together. In every square inch of your skin, there are about 19 million cells. Every one of them is a major factory in which it's supplied with energy, various activities are performed, operations are done, and then various wastes are carried away. 19 million of these cells in every square inch of your skin and mine. But not only that, there are roughly 625 sweat glands in that square inch of your skin. And we each appreciate the powerful wonder of how that allows the body's temperature to be regulated so that you don't get too hot. We can certainly appreciate that as the spring and summertime seasons are about to come upon us. But notice that's only the beginning. There are 90 oil glands in that same square inch of skin. Furthermore, we can appreciate some 65 hairs are present. In addition to that, in somewhat of great amazement, there's 19 feet of blood vessels in that square inch of skin. 19 feet. Isn't that amazing to consider the amount then of nutrients and other nourishment that's provided to the skin by virtue of the heart as it pumps the blood through it? 19 feet of blood vessels in a square inch. That's remarkable. Truly amazing in its consideration. But I've also listed nextly, we're all aware that one of the marvelous things about the skin is the sensation of touch. We each know that we can take, say, a nut and screw that onto a bowl by feel of our skin. 
or we can appreciate the tender touch of our spouse or our children. Notice in that square inch of skin, there are 19,000 sensory cells. 19,000. And in addition to that, there's approximately 32,000 sensory corpuscles. There's again approximately 1,300 pain points. That reminds us also of another tremendous feature of the skin, doesn't it? What a great security feature and great protection it affords when one perhaps is in a region of being much too hot and in a sense of danger, the pain sensed in the skin can provide immediate detection and perhaps the word of warning to flee to safer areas. Might we notice there's about 160 pressure points in that square inch of skin. Couple that with the about 77 cold sensitive points and the roughly 13 hot sensitive points we can begin to see the skin is not merely a passive thing that just covers the other parts of the body such as the muscle and the bone. There is great activity in every square inch of skin and that activity highlighted by just a few of the things that scientists have come to appreciate about the skin itself. Perhaps a picture would be in order as we at least briefly consider portions of this. That is an artist's rendition of what, uh, again, a side view of the skin would look like. You can notice the hairs, perhaps the most obvious thing to see in that picture. But as you look, for, for instance, from the top of the skin downward, you can see the veins and the sweat glands and the arteries. You can see the other types of tissues and glands that are present. May I quickly submit again? The skin is an extremely active place in the body for a great deal takes place in every square inch of the skin that is mine and that is yours. Those concepts perhaps lead me to make a few more comments before we turn our attention to the Bible. In addition to making these previous statements, notice the skin makes up roughly one-sixth of the weight of an average-sized person. That again highlights the amount of size or the amount that the skin takes up. Again, it's the largest organ in my body and in yours. That largeness is also seen in some other features that are pretty amazing when one stops to think about it. The skin is waterproof. Notice it allows, of course, perspiration to pass from the inside out. It allows the passage of heat in that direction. But we all know that we can bathe or go swimming if, if that particular interest is of ours. And the skin protects the inside from the watery things outside. That's a rather interesting thing, isn't it? But notice also, in addition to that waterproof character, that's to be contrasted with the fact the skin does allow respiratory things to take place with regard to the body, the exchange of various gases that are necessary for the livelihood of the body. They actually can pass through the skin. Our God designed something like that. It keeps water out but allows the passage of gases both in both directions. Those concepts are only highlighted when we note the following wonderfully beneficial features of the skin. i list the next one. We know that the skin, or the scientists have now appreciated, it is able to take ultraviolet light, say from the sun or from other sources, and use that in the following fashion. It produces the much-needed vitamin D from it. Our skin does that. 
And that ultraviolet light is about us, naturally produced by the sun, for example. And yet the body can take that, most especially the skin, and convert that into the very necessary vitamin D that is needed for healthfulness, that's needed for the vitality of the organs of the body. Our skin does that. The next point that I chose to make is a rehearsal of, again, the necessary element of the skin in the maintenance of normal body temperature. We're told from an early age that normal body temperature is between 98 and 99 degrees Fahrenheit. We might notice, though, that quite often we are in situations that are far colder and we're in situations that are far warmer. How does the body maintain the constancy of temperature that it needs in order to prevent damage? The skin is one of the most critical things to help maintain it. Notice again the blood that courses through the skin. There's a great deal of surface area to the skin, and hence there's a much easier time regulating the body temperature by understanding that large surface area and the character of the blood that flows through the skin. But perhaps the last thing and I chose to list. The last feature that we might quickly notice about the skin, the simple fact that the skin is an incredible army in a sense. We well know, maybe especially at this time of year, that there are bacteria, there are viruses, there are various and sundry things that have as their interest the attacking of your body and mind. We know all about these microorganisms that thrive in, in the various places. Might we never forget the skin is one of the things that protects the inside from the out and helps to keep us safe from the damaging harm that can be caused by those microorganisms, the various and sundry viruses and bacteria and other things like that. That's an amazing thing to consider, all that the skin does, isn't it? Those comments, I would hope, have only directed us in the attention that the skin seems far too majestic to have made itself, much to the chagrin, I suppose, of evolutionists. We have seen that often in our studies throughout this series. Things that obviously exist and occur about us, but that simply could not have come to be by themselves, by the own nature of the origin of random chances. And I would submit the same seems to be true of the skin. Noticing in the Bible, for example, how often does the word skin appear? Or when one thinks about the word touch, which is a primary thing that the skin makes possible, I've listed those facts for you. The word skin, or some form of it, occurs 101 times in the King James Version of the Bible. That word touch, or again, some form of it, 167 times in the King James Translation. I suppose we each can remember many passages that perhaps either directly or indirectly make reference to one or the other of those things. That idea only challenges us to consider some of the other ways that skin or that touch occurs in the Word of God. As you contemplate again the sensory character of the skin, note some of these usages if you would. The word touch, for example, and its usage in the Bible does frequently make reference to the direct physical contact of a person's hand or other part of the body with some other entity. And our Savior frequently, in fact, touched various people. 
Could I ask you to notice just a few of the passages that I've listed? In Mark 9, verse 29, or rather Matthew 9, verse 29, Jesus on that occasion was approached by two blind men. Jesus touched their eyes, the text tells us, and they were healed. There was Jesus physically placing his hands upon the eyes of these blind men, and they were healed. The incredible power able to be transferred by the power of God in the character of him touching the eyes of those blind men. But maybe another example from the Old Testament. In Job 1, verse number 11, we notice a, a reference that is different than the one we just noted from, from Matthew. That reference is to a figurative usage of the word touch. Sometimes the word can be employed in a fashion that indicates a person can be affected by or influenced by that which another either has done or is doing, though there's no direct physical contact per se. Sometimes we even use the word in that fashion today. Perhaps if a statement is made, something happens at the office and perhaps you go home and tell your wife or your husband, the decisions that the bosses have made have touched me significantly. Maybe in an, in an emotional way, you have been greatly bothered by or greatly encouraged perhaps by something that has taken place or something that was said. To use the word touch that way is exactly the way Job used it. Wasn't he greatly afflicted by the things that Satan brought upon him? He was touched significantly by the activities and the decisions that Satan brought his way. In light of that, I would quickly bring to each of our attention the interesting usage of the word touch as it relates to association with Jesus. I've listed for our discussion Mark 6, verse number 56. If you have your Bible handy, I would ask you to note just briefly the text of that chapter. Mark chapter 6, verse number 56. The text reads, this is the last verse of that chapter. The text reads, And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. As Jesus went about his preaching ministry and the preaching campaigns in that area, they were so enamored by and so encouraged by the presence of the Savior and what they had heard him accomplish, they would place those that were infirmed and sick. And as Jesus walked by, their hope was that the sick could merely touch the hem of his garment. And the text tells us that those that did were made whole. The healing then of those physical maladies and those physical infirmities and those physical sicknesses only leads us to perhaps question about touching the Savior spiritually. In Luke 6, verse number 19, I have another passage I would ask that you briefly consider with me. Notice that in the previous text, we notice that those that touched the hem of the Lord's garment were made whole. And now in Luke 6, verse number 19, we see something similar. It says, And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. That perhaps only brings to mind occasions in which there was a lady who had an issue of blood some 12 years who had the blessed opportunity to touch the Savior. 
And Jesus knew that virtue and power had gone out of him, and he asked, Who touched me? The apostles were somewhat beside themselves, saying, All these people are thronging thee, and thou ask, Who touched me? Jesus knew that someone touched him who had belief, who had faith, who had a strong desire and confidence in what he was able to accomplish only by virtue of being able to touch the hem of his garment. The fact of all these things does directly ask you and me, again, in a spiritual way, have you touched the Savior? We know that he doesn't live here in the flesh any longer, and so I can't shake his hand physically, and neither can you. But the New Testament does help us see that there is a necessity and an essentiality and a vitality in being a very real part of the Savior. And touching in a symbolic and in a very, in a sense, a real way, all that he allows to, all that he allows to be made possible. I have a passage in Galatians three. I would ask us to consider it. Probably is a very familiar one, as Paul wrote to the, ch the churches of Galatia, beginning in verse number twenty-six of Galatians chapter three. On that occasion, he made the observation about being a part of the Savior being a part of who he is, standing forth for what he teaches. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now if one has put on Christ, one would certainly be in a position to symbolically touch him. For you would be a part of him. We would be a real part of the livelihood and the capability and the work that he has in store. Is it any wonder then to the Corinthian congregation, Paul affirmed, we are earthen vessels. Second Corinthians 4, verse number 7, with the opportunity to share forth and to do the beating and the work of the Lord. In verse 11 of that same chapter, he makes note then that you and I bear in our body the character of the Lord. And isn't it interesting in the next chapter, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, we read, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then all were dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. We thus are, in a very real sense, those who have touched the Savior, and we've allowed him to touch us. Paul very well affirmed that point, did he not, in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I not live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is an amazing thing then to consider having been touched by the Savior. And in fact, that idea occurs in a number of places in the New Testament in rather strategic ways. I would ask you to notice in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, if it's the case then that you and I have been touched by the Savior, that we've allowed Him to mold our life into what it ought to be, we've allowed Him to shape and form our character and our person into that which pleases God, what is one direct consequence of it? In that verse, Paul says, Touch not the unclean thing. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Obviously signifying the usage of the word touch. Touch not the unclean thing. 
We are thus not to be of those individuals who engage in, that is to say, involve ourselves with, touch that which is unclean, condemned by God, despising to Him. We are not to touch that, but to come out and be separate, for that is what the Holy God demands of us. That degree, thus, of the lifestyle which we touch not that which is unclean is only highlighted further by the closing chapter of 1 John. In 1 John 5, verse 18, a rather scintillating passage in, in a number of ways. Consider the statement therein made by John. 1 John 5, verse number 18. In that text, John says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Notice that it is, of course, just as surely the case as it is our desire to be touched by the Savior. It should also be a very strong desire not to be touched by the, by, by the devil, by Satan, by our chief adversary. For as we remember, he is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. And here John very powerfully says that those who are born of God, those who have been remade into his image in a spiritual fashion and way. Those who are new creatures in Christ, having been baptized for the remission of their sins, those who are thus walking by faith in the Spirit and not according to the flesh, are those, he says in that verse, that the wicked one toucheth them not. That's a fantastic consideration, isn't it? To be in a position where the devil toucheth them not. Certainly it's the desire I would think of each of us to be so described. The notion then of how the skin leads us to the sensation of touch, leads us to appreciate, I hope, more thoroughly and more marvelously all of these references to the word touch, even in a spiritual way in the New Testament. The word touch, doesn't it indicate a strong bond? When perhaps we can see a husband and wife walking hand in hand through life, meeting the turmoils, difficulties that they face. They have a bond of being wedded together in holy matrimony, the bliss that God has ordained for them to enjoy. In that sense, they, though twain, have become one flesh. Ephesians 5, verses 29 to 31. Notice then that the idea of touch is involved in that. And when we've touched the Savior... And we allow Him to constantly touch and guard and lead in our lives. We too are in a wonderfully strong position to understand the kind of people we ought to be and the great blessings that God has in store for those people. The human body has led us in that type of idea. But I'd submit the latter part of our lesson tonight. We'll look somewhat briefly at just a few of the other things I thought it would be fair to quickly appreciate about the human body. Our discussions of each of these will be much briefer than the discussions of the others have been, but I thought it certainly would be a bit remiss to bypass them and say nothing about them. You see, there are many other systems in the human body that could be discussed and that could be mentioned. And probably, if you remember your courses in biology, there's much more that scientists can say about it. But it's also true the Bible has things to say too. Consider the digestive system, if you would. 
everything beginning from the teeth on to the way that the food that you and I eat is digested by the body and the body is able to turn that food into the proper nourishment that fuels all of the cells of your body and that allows the body to engage in all of the activities that it ought to and that it should. As one con contemplates that digestive system, I'd submit that one of the first things that is an incredibly good question, it seems to me, has to do with that which is in your stomach and mind. I think we're each aware that there's some kind of acid in the stomach, and sometimes in the moments that are a bit unfavorable, that acid can be a bit bothersome. It can lead to other things such as discomfort and ulcers and various things like acid reflux disease. But might we also notice in regard to that acid, it is, an, it is an extremely strong acid. If you have taken chemistry and know a bit about the pH scale, for example, it's to be noted that the acid in your stomach is mostly hydrochloric acid. It is indeed a very strong acid. Good question then is this. We know that in the chemistry laboratories at Tennessee Tech, if a chemist is to have his or her students use hydrochloric acid, there's a proper beaker, a proper means of disposal, a proper way of handling an acid that's that potent and that's that volatile. Who designed the stomach in such a way that it could house that acid but yet not be eaten through? If you take hydrochloric acid and pour it on your hand, it will eat through the skin of your hand. Who designed the stomach lining and the things about the stomach in such a way that it could hold that acid in place and it posed no danger to you? I'd submit to you no evolutionist has a good explanation for that. For after all, which came first? Was it the acid that came first or was it the lining of the stomach? If it's the acid that came first, it should have eaten through the stomach lining. If it's the stomach that came first, there could have been no purpose for the acid. Might we notice God worked everything through properly in the right fashion and in the right way. In addition to that concept, notice also the automatic character of the stomach. When you and I eat food and it proceeds along its way down the esophagus into the stomach, what is it that turns the stomach on to make it digest? I'd submit to you, you don't have to think and tell your stomach, start digesting. You don't have to tell the stomach to secrete the acids so that the food can be digested. It happens automatically. That's a wonderful design, isn't it? May I submit, there was a designer to make that happen, and God did it. Various references in the Bible help us see that even the food that enters that stomach is a tremendous gift of God, and that the process of the strength that it makes possible is also a wonderful feature of what God has designed. In Psalm 78, verse 25, the psalmist of old made note that man on one occasion ate angels' food. Even God made note of the process of eating and the value that that has to the human frame and the human body. Didn't the psalmist also utter a marvelous promise in Psalm 37? In verse 25 of that chapter, he said, "'I have been young and I am old.'" Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. We've even stated in Genesis on Sunday morning the critical nature of human beings for food, for nourishment. And yet that is a part of the system that God has put in place. 
And might we also remember that if a man will not work, neither ought he to eat. To quote the very statement of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse number 10. As one works, obtains the food, and then partakes of it, that's a blessing from God. A very thing that He's given the human family to enjoy. But not only the digestive system, I think we'd be a bit remiss not to quickly make mention of yet another system. The respiratory system. This one, too, has many things about it that could be said. We, again, shall be relatively brief. We know, I think, that that respiratory system involves the nose, and it involves the lungs, and a few other items and elements as well, and how truly vital these things are. Ponder the intricacy, the genuine intricacy of this system. The atmosphere contains oxygen. And yet the cells in your body need oxygen. And so by the process of respiration, oxygen is taken from the, from the air by the lungs. As the blood absorbs it and carries it along in the body, it's carried to every cell in your body. But once the oxygen is thus dropped off, if you will, off this conveyor belt, it picks up the wastes that the cell has generated and carries them out of the body. Your lungs have a tremendous work that they must do. In fact, I think each of us are well aware that much like the heart, if your heart stops beating for very long, you will die. If you are not able to breathe for just a very short amount of time, you will die. Notice the critical nature of the respiratory system. And just like the other systems we've noted, it's automatic. You don't have to tell your lungs, Breathe out and breathe in. It happens because God has orchestrated an automatic function for it. That automatic function is seen, at least in a way, by some of the features we see day to day about the importance of breathing and how difficult life is when that becomes hard. The Bible, too, makes mention on frequent occasions of breath and breathing. In fact, in Genesis 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. When God fashioned the body of Adam, that body by itself was a dead thing, wasn't it? But when God infused it with his spirit and breathed into it the breath of life, it was a human being. Today, we can still understand that the character of breath relates intimately to life itself. In fact, I'd submit that on many occasions, that's actually the thrust of the Bible's usage of the word soul. Because you see, the word soul, S-O-U-L, is translated from a Hebrew word that basically means to breathe. When one thus looks at an individual that is alive, that person has to be breathing. But by the same token, when we visit a funeral home, one of the things that can be said about the corpse, it's not breathing. Thus notice the intimate relationship that exists between breathing and life. That type of relationship is only highlighted by Job's statement in Job 12, verse number 10, which intimates the same kind of idea. You and I see the importance of breath, the importance of breathing, and thus, we can perhaps better appreciate then that the human body, the human being, I should say, consists of body and soul and spirit. The fact that we're breathing indicates the, the real existence of a soul. And inasmuch as that's an indication of the very spirit of God that's within us, 
Might we appreciate that Job highlighted that idea as well, didn't he? In Job 34, verses 2 and 3, and also Job 33, verses 6 through 10. Perhaps one final system, and then the lesson will, will have been brought to a close tonight. It might be that this latter system is a bit less familiar than some of the others, like respiratory and circulatory, but at least might we notice the lymphatic system of the human body. I know we've each heard of it in passing, maybe not in exactly that phrase, but you've heard of the lymph nodes that exist in your body and mind. And typically when we hear about them, it's usually an unfavorable thing. Someone has a kind of cancer maybe that has afflicted their lymph nodes. And we often are told that that's certainly a very tragic thing indeed. But notice just a few of the things that make the lymphatic system so significant. Some of the elements in the body that we have a tendency to forget about actually comprise the lymphatic system, like the tonsils and the spleen. Those things, you see, have some roles to play that I have briefly highlighted in the following notation. The immune system. We stated earlier how important the skin is to help keep bad things out and to keep, of course, the good things of the body in. But consider briefly the lymphatic system and its role in the immune system to keep the cells of the body strong and to keep the systems able to fight off the microorganisms that do make it inside. We can see how sick we become when a virus or some other kind of thing that we are able to, to catch. The lymphatic system is a strong defense mechanism built into the body. And again, we don't have to think about its operation. It happens automatically. It happens naturally. I've listed the following notations about it. The lymphatic system defends the body against infection and disease. And as we've noted in Matthew 8 verse 14, even in Bible times there were some whose lymphatic system wasn't able to ward off the things with which they were in fact afflicted. On that occasion it was Peter's mother. We noticed she was very sick. And in Acts the ninth chapter, Dorcas passed away due to the difficulties that ultimately surrounded her. We can also see, though, the importance, I would hope, as the lesson comes to its close tonight, of the following idea. Just as surely as God has made this system that works automatically in us to help make our physical body healthy, the far greater thing of importance is to make sure that we are spiritually healthy to make sure that things of a spiritual character are healthy and right. It is to be noted that there are many similarities between these attributes of the physical body and the attributes of a spiritual well-being person. We've noted the attributes of the respiratory system to the soul. We've seen the character now, I think, of the fact there should be a mechanism to help keep us spiritually healthy. In Mark 2, verse 17, didn't Jesus make a statement much like that? He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the Lord made the statement there were some that thought they didn't need any spiritual help. And yet the great physician was about them. May we appreciate, Jesus wasn't a physical doctor in a sense that he had a doctor's degree from some university. But he was the great physician. He had at his disposal that which could forgive the sins of an individual and make that person whole and right in the sight of God. 
And friend, he can still do it today. The Lord, you see, came to call all of us to repentance. And when we humbly and faithfully accept that call and respond in loving obedience to it, His blood will cleanse us from sin and declare us a spiritually whole person able to understand and to enjoy all the blessings of spiritual life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we remember there that Paul directly told the Ephesians, You are dead in trespasses and sins. Notice again that linkage between the physical body and the spiritual. If it's the case that trespasses and sin will cause us to be dead, that means it's an affront to the spiritual person. It'll cause us to be separated from God, destined, if we don't change that fact, to be eternally lost. Thankfully, the Savior is the great physician. He knocks upon the door of your heart and mind and pleads entrance, desiring to change your life and to change mine into what it ought to be and to give us the life that leads into everlasting life itself. Jesus did say, did he not, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. In John 11, verses 25 and 26, didn't he there say, I am the resurrection and the life. If you and I want spiritual health, there is no other source than He. There is no other physician besides the great one. One last passage I ask you to consider. Again, in the ninth chapter of Acts, we will remember that Aeneas was another one who was greatly troubled by physical infirmity. But yet, when Peter came to him, was able to share and to do the thing of bringing him life and to encourage and heal him. It is to be noted then tonight as we bring this series of lessons to a conclusion that we have seen a thrilling study, I hope, about the nature of the Bible and science. And in particular tonight, we begin with the skin. And notice that it is a veritable powerhouse of activity. So many things take place in every square inch of skin. But then we notice the sensation of touch and the character of it and its importance only led us to these other systems, such as the digestive, the respiratory, the lymphatic, all of them telling us this body of yours and mine is a masterpiece of design. And quite often these systems interact with each other in a way that at this point is still beyond the full comprehension of scientists. Our God made it all, didn't he? And he, of course, has a desire for us to be with him in heaven one day forevermore. Are you living right now in a way to where that would be the case if you were to die tonight? If your life came to an end this very evening, where would you stand before God? Can you now with confidence affirm that you have done the best with what God gave you? You have relinquished control of your life to the Master and you follow Him dutifully to the best of your capability each day. If you do, then praise be unto God. Continue that lifestyle. You will be forever blessed. If though things are amiss in your life, maybe you've never even become a Christian. Perhaps you've never allowed the Savior to touch you at all. Notice the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3 was very sternly told that they made the Lord sick. And they were affirmed that, whereas you think that you're rich and you have no need of anyone, you are in fact poor and naked and miserable and blind. Your, physical, your spiritual health is atrocious. And may I somewhat bluntly say the same thing tonight. 
if you have reached the age of knowing that the Savior died for you, and you know that there's sin in your life, and you know the precious message of this book, but you have not responded spiritually tonight, your health is atrocious. You are, in fact, terminally ill spiritually. There's only one thing that can change it, the blood of Jesus. Tonight, let Jesus touch your life. He'll make a new creature of you, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You can walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verse 4. And when you reach the end of the way of this life, eternity waits for you in the glorious bliss of heaven itself. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in that way or in praying for your strength or rededication or the forgiveness of sin of a public nature in your life, don't delay, don't procrastinate. In fact, why not even tonight, now, as together we stand and sing, will you not respond?